Hello, this is Helga Edwards, and I'm here with my husband, Bob. Today, we will be reading Genesis chapter 47 from the Good News Translation of the Bible, today's English version, beginning at verse 1. So Joseph took five of his brothers and went to the king. He told him, My father and my brothers have come from Canaan with their flocks, their herds, and all that they own. They are now in the region of Goshen. He then presented his brothers to the king. The king asked them, What is your occupation? We are shepherds, sir, just as our ancestors were, they answered. We have come to live in this country because in the land of Canaan the famine is so severe that there is no pasture for our flocks. Please give us permission to live in the region of Goshen. The king said to Joseph, Now that your father and your brothers have arrived, the land of Egypt is theirs. Let them settle in the region of Goshen, the best part of the land. And if there are any capable men among them, put them in charge of my own livestock. Then Joseph brought his father Jacob and presented him to the king. Jacob gave the king his blessing, and the king asked him, How old are you? Jacob answered, My life of wandering has lasted a hundred and thirty years. Those years have been few and difficult, unlike the long years of my ancestors in their wanderings. Jacob gave the king a farewell blessing and left. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers in Egypt, giving them property in the best of the land near the city of Ramses, as the king had commanded. Joseph provided food for his father, his brothers, and all the rest of his father's family including the very youngest. The famine was so severe that there was no food anywhere, and the people of Egypt and Canaan became weak with hunger. As they bought grain, Joseph collected all the money and took it to the palace. When all the money in Egypt and Canaan was spent, the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food, don't let us die, do something, all our money is gone. Joseph answered, Bring your livestock. I will give you food in exchange for it if your money is all gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and he gave them food in exchange for their horses, sheep, goats, cattle, and donkeys. That year he supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock. The following year they came to him and said, We will not hide the fact from you, sir that our money is all gone and our livestock belongs to you. There is nothing left to give you except our bodies and our lands. Don't let us die, do something. Don't let our fields be deserted. Buy us and our land in exchange for food. We will be the king's slaves and he will own our land. Give us grain to keep us alive and seed so that we can plant our fields. Joseph bought all the land in Egypt for the king. Every Egyptian was forced to sell his land because the famine was so severe and all the land became the king's property. Joseph made slaves of the people from one end of Egypt to the other. The only land he did not buy was the land that belonged to the priests. They did not have to sell their lands because the king gave them an allowance to live on. Joseph said to the people, You see, 
I have now bought you and your lands for the king. Here is seed for you to sow in your fields. At the time of harvest, you must give one-fifth to the king. You can use the rest for seed and for food for yourselves and your families. They answered, You have saved our lives. You have been good to us, sir, and we will be the king's slaves. So Joseph made it a law for the land of Egypt that one-fifth of the harvest should belong to the king. This law still remains in force today. Only the lands of the priests did not become the king's property. The Israelites lived in Egypt in the region of Goshen, where they became rich and had many children. Jacob lived in Egypt 17 years until he was 147 years old. When the time drew near for him to die, he called for his son Joseph and said to him, Place your hand between my thighs and make a solemn vow that you will not bury me in Egypt. I want to be buried where my fathers are. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me where they are buried. Joseph answered, I will do as you say. Jacob said, Make a vow that you will. Joseph made the vow, and Jacob gave thanks there on his bed. Here ends our reading of Genesis chapter 47. Some historians have claimed that there is no archaeological evidence to support the story of Joseph, his father and his brothers immigrating to Egypt, being given positions of authority there, the Israelites later becoming slaves and then either leaving or being expelled and returning to the land of Canaan. Sadly, as is often the case, with those who have settled on a historical narrative that supports their own personal worldview, these historians do not recognize the significance of available evidence. They do not seem to see things that do not align with their own preconceptions. In contrast to the skepticism of some of these scholars, Austrian archaeologist Manfred Bietak has unearthed extensive evidence of Semites immigrating from Canaan to live and hold power in Egypt, in the remains of the ancient Egyptian capital of Avaris. Included in this evidence were inscriptions in memory of a prominent Semite named Jacob. Furthermore, an Egyptian burial scarab was found at a tomb in Canaan also marked with the name Jacob. Furthermore, cave drawings clearly depict the immigration of a Semite tribe to Egypt. Notably, the people in the drawings wear striped garments of many colors, like Joseph's famous coat. Egyptian records carved in stone also mention judgment against Egypt by a singular god and the eventual expulsion or exodus of these Semite people. All of this historical and archaeological evidence supports the story we have just read about Joseph, his father and his brothers coming to Egypt, and Joseph rising to power there. The judgment of Egypt and the exodus of a Semite people are discussed in the next book of the Bible, fittingly named Exodus. For now, however, we will continue to focus on the book of Genesis and the significance of the language found in chapter 47. Egypt's king talks specifically to Joseph, his father, and his brothers. 
He asks exclusively for capable men to watch over his own livestock. This raises the question, why did Egypt's king have such a patriarchal worldview? Why did he not address or speak of women? An insightful article found at pbs.org provides a clear answer. Quote, Egyptian society was highly structured. A woman's social position was largely defined by the status of her father and husband. According to Mayet, the Egyptian view of the order of the universe, it was definitely a man's world. Only men were allowed to work in the government, so only they could hold real power. Few women actually worked outside the home as it was frowned upon. While their husbands and fathers held down jobs, the main role of Egyptian women was to look after the home and the children. As there was no contraception, women would have spent much of their life either pregnant or breastfeeding. This, along with the housework, would have left little time for other work. Over the last thousand years, scientific discoveries have helped explain the natural world. We know about our bodies, conception and childbirth, and how diseases spread. We understand how the solar system works, the relationship of the earth, the moon and the sun, and therefore what causes day and night. 3,000 years ago, the ancient Egyptians observed the same natural phenomena, but could not explain them. They could see that day followed night, that tides came and went, and that crops grew or failed, but they didn't know why. This made the world confusing and frightening, so it was logical for them to use religion to explain these mysteries. The actions of the gods provided convincing explanations where no other existed. The gods caused night and day, harvest and famine, light and dark, because if they didn't, what or who did? Religion helped Egyptians go about their lives without worrying too much. If they honored the right gods in the right way at the right time, all would be well. Central to Egyptian religion was Mayet, the alleged rightful order of the universe believed to be established by the gods at the beginning of time. Mayet was crucial to human life and included ideas of truth, justice, and moderation. If Mayet was lost, the country could experience chaos, isfet. Peaceful and prosperous years were credited to a strong presence of Mayet, whereas years of civil unrest were blamed on isfet. The pharaoh was responsible for Mayet. He was expected to control every part of Egyptian life. Although he had deputies to do some of the work, he was ultimately responsible. He accepted praise when things went well, but took the blame for bad years. Unlike other major religions, Egyptians were polytheists. They worshipped more than one god and there were hundreds of gods to choose from. Some were minor or local gods, while others were more important and much more powerful." Unquote. In summary, why was Egypt's king only interested in talking to men and giving them authority? Because 
This was consistent with the Egyptian religious concept of Mayet, a supposed social hierarchy ruled by men and ordained by Egyptian gods. Egypt's king believed that the kingdom would prosper when the natural order of the universe was observed. Tragically, this non-biblical religious tradition found its way into the church through 4th century Roman theologians. Notably, St. Augustine believed that a just society was characterized by men ruling over women and free Romans ruling over supposedly inferior slaves. He shares this worldview in a commentary on the Gospel of John, which by no means says any such thing. To understand where St. Augustine got such a distorted view of the Gospel, it's necessary to read his books entitled Confessions, where he explains repeatedly that his understanding of God in the Bible was shaped by what he refers to as the books of the Platonists. Many of St. Augustine's ideas about men and women, for example, seem to draw directly from the writing of a Neoplatonic philosopher named Plotinus. Plotinus believed that men represent the mind and spirit, while women represent the body and its passions. According to this ancient Greek philosophy, just as mind and spirit must rule over the body and emotion, so too must men rule over women. St. Augustine shares the same worldview in his commentary on the Apostle Paul's letters and Genesis chapter 2. Once again, however, the Bible itself does not teach that men represent the spirit and must therefore rule over women, who allegedly represent the flesh. This notion can only be found in St. Augustine's commentaries. As for Plotinus, he borrowed his worldview from the works of Plato that divide society into distinct hierarchical classes. Greek men were assumed to possess reason in abundance. Women, children, and slaves were viewed as being dominated by their passions. According to Plato, in a just state, a few wise men would rule over the masses, especially non-Greeks, women, and slaves. But what does this have to do with today's Bible reading in ancient Egypt? According to numerous historians, Plato developed his understanding of what he called the order of nature through his frequent journeys to Egypt to learn philosophy and religion from ancient Egyptian priests. The core of ancient Egypt's worldview was the concept of Mayet, a male-dominated social hierarchy, and this was imported directly into Greek philosophy, which later found its way into the church through 4th century theologians like St. Augustine. Certain prominent Protestant reformers drew their own belief in male authority directly from St. Augustine and Plato. One of these reformers was John Calvin. Calvin explained, quote, Augustine is so holy with me that if I wish to write a confession of my faith, I could do so out of his writings, unquote. Calvin concluded, quote, Let the woman be satisfied with her state of subjection, and not take it amiss that she is made inferior to the more distinguished sex." Unquote. This male-dominated worldview lingers in the work of today's complementarian church leaders, men like John Piper and Wayne Grudem, 
who edited and helped co-author a book entitled Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. In this book, various authors derive their patriarchal interpretation of the Bible directly from John Calvin. Drawing from this book, John Piper and Wayne Grudem authored a smaller work entitled 50 Crucial Questions About Manhood and Womanhood. Question 28 is a direct reflection of the ancient Egyptian religious principle known as Mayet. Interpreting the story of Adam and Eve's temptation through a distinctly patriarchal lens, Grudem and Piper explain, quote, Satan's subtlety is that he knew the created order God had ordained for the good of the family, and he deliberately defiled it by ignoring the man and taking up his dealings with the woman. Satan put her in the position of spokesman, leader, and defender. At that moment, both the man and the woman slipped from their innocence and let themselves be drawn into a pattern of relating to each other that to this day has proved destructive. In this case, the main point is not that the man is undeceivable or that the woman is more deceivable, but that when God's order of leadership is repudiated, it brings damage and ruin." Unquote. In other words, today's complementarian leaders believe that God's alleged order of leadership must be respected or the result will be damage and ruin. Male authority, according to this theology, is the key to prosperity, just as it was in ancient Egypt. The notion that a magical formula, specifically male authority, is the key to well-being is further underscored by an endorsement of Grudem and Piper's work, which reads, quote, There's a kind of deep magic about the way God created man and woman, an ancient wonder that few of us postmoderns appreciate. Unquote. The ancient Egyptian priests couldn't have said it better. This magic formula for prosperity has nothing to do with the book of Genesis. Genesis chapters 1 and 2 say nothing whatsoever about Adam being Eve's leader and spokesman. These ideas can only be found in the commentary work of patriarchal men. Does the ancient Egyptian concept of Mayet actually come from the Bible or Jesus Christ? Absolutely not. It was Mayet that supported Egypt's segregation and enslavement of the Hebrew people. It was a similar prejudice that led St. Augustine to distort the Bible to support both slavery and the tradition of male authority. It was this belief that was carried over into Reformation theology by men like John Calvin. And it is this tradition of sexism that continues to be perpetuated by the leaders of today's complementarian movement. This legacy of prejudice and oppression does not have its origins in the mind of God or in the heart of Jesus Christ. It's time the church stopped confusing the good news of Jesus Christ with the religion of idols that was judged by God for its enslavement of God's people.